Welcome to the podcast, Eavesdropping on Arthurians, a podcast that records some of the world's top Arthurians chatting about Arthurian texts. Imagine you're at an Arthurian conference, and after a day of listening to papers on all things Arthurian, you've all gone to the pub. So, order a pint of ale, pull up a stool, and settle in to listen to two scholars talk about their favorite books. to do something a little different. Vincent Mass is going to be asking me questions. But never fear, you'll still get to eavesdrop on a conversation about Arthurian literature. Today's topic is love and death at the end of Thomas Mallory's Mort d'Arthur. So today we're turning the table and we'll be uh, receiving the usual host of the uh, podcast of uh, eavesdropping on Arthurian and she'll be the one being uh, interviewed. Uh, uh, Katy Kasi, professor of medieval literature in the English department here at Dalhousie. She's uh, she currently uh, teaches a course on Arthurian literature. That's her specialty. But this podcast is also in the context of my own course uh, on love and, and death in medieval and early modern literature. So I'll be asking question about. Uh, we'll be talking about uh, Thomas uh, Mallory, especially the the themes of uh, love and death. Okay, so set the context for us first. So uh, compared to uh, Chrétien III, Thomas Mallory is a bit of a latecomer, but uh, he plays a crucial role for Arthurian literature, and he also plays a crucial uh, role in the course that you teach on Arthur this fall. Can you tell us why? Mallory really put all the previous Arthurian stuff together. So he comes at the very end of the middle of what we usually think of as the Middle Ages. Um, and so he was writing around 1469. So he's a 15th century English writer writing some years after Chrétien de Troyes. Um, and he is important because he took the French tradition and the English tradition and kind of put it all together into one story that at least in the English speaking world, that's kind of the story of Arthur that most people know. Um, he wrote it while he was in prison. And so there are three candidates for who Thomas Mallory is in the historical record. Um, and people earlier were a little bit uneasy about their favorite author being put in prison and probably for rape and pillaging. And so they kind of tried to find other candidates, but probably now it's people generally agree that it's Mallory of Newbold Redbold. And he, um, he was excluded. This was during the Wars of the Roses. And he was excluded from general pardons on both sides. So both the Yorkists and the Lancastrians issued general pardons. Mallory was excluded by name um, from these general pardons. He had to stay in prison. And while in prison, he, was, he wrote these great stories about love and chivalry and honor and all the stuff he apparently didn't do in his everyday life. Uh, so tell me a bit about uh, Lancelot or Lancelot. In, in the context of my own course on love and death, he's a key character and he's also a, a, a key character for Chrétien III and for the uh, French Arthurian literature uh, tradition, such as the uh, for the Lancelot Graal cycle. So how important is he on the other side of the channel? How important is he for Mallory? 
Um, those are actually two separate questions. So the English tradition doesn't tend to put as much importance on Lancelot as the French tradition. And so in some of the later texts, he's there, he's in the Stanzaic um, uh, Mort d'Arthur, and he plays a fairly big role. But Gawain is really much more important. I would say he's of equal importance or even more importance to Lancelot in the English tradition. Mallory, however, really liked the French tradition. And so I think Lancelot is Mallory's favorite. He's the best knight. Gawain is much more um, morally dubious and complex. And uh, I mean, Lancelot is morally dubious and con complex too, but, but he's always presented as the best knight. And there, there are three kind of knights that are the best knight um, for Mallory, um, the best three knights are Tristram, Lamarack, and, and Lancelot. Um, and he always adds, but Lancelot was the best of them all. Last time we discussed, I argue for the uh, importance of the context of courtly love to understand Chrétien Troyes' take on Lancelot. But what about Mallory? And what love... What role does love play in the, uh, Le Mort d'Arthur? And, and, and what kind of love are we talking about? I'm glad you asked what kind of love, because love plays a big role in the Mort d'Arthur, but it's not the same type of fin amour or courtly love that Chrétien de Troyes had. I think those that kind of codes of love and the... Um, you know, the, the role playing and the idolizing of the, the woman and so on. Um, whether or not that was in real life, it, was, it came into the, the literature. It's kind of the remnants are there still by the 15th century, but most of that is gone. And so love, I think I said last time, love in Mallory is much more practical. I find it a little bit more realistic. Um, and but it's still important. Lancelot still fights better for Guinevere and arguably, and I want to talk about this later, but arguably love and the kind of co conflicting um, loyalties of love to your um, beloved and love to your king, um, they tear apart the, the round table. They tear apart Camelot. And so love is important. Um, Knights are always falling in love. And Mallory really explores the kind of varieties of that and the different ways of doing that. Um, but it's not that kind of codified structure that is in Finamore. But it's very realistic. I think um, there's a passage that I want to look at in Mallory where Lancelot and Guinevere have a fight. And so this is at the beginning of, of book, um, Vinever's book seven, um, Lancelot and Guinevere. And it's just after the quest for the Holy Grail. And the, um, as the book saith, Lancelot began to resort unto Queen Guinevere again and forgot the promise of perfection that he made in the quest. And so they begin to hang out together again. Rumors begin to go around about them. And, and Lancelot is kind of a star figure at court, right? And so damsels and ladies are always falling for him. He's the star varsity football player with, you know, who's good looking and nice and good at school. 
and he's just all around good. And so um, a lot of damsels are always falling in love with him. And plus he's unattached, right? He's officially unattached. So he's available. He's your kind of um, ultimate bachelor. And so um, they, because these rumors are going around, Lancelot, um, he stays away from Guinevere. And the, Guinevere gets mad and she says, she calls him into her chamber and says, Sir Lancelot, I see and feel daily that your love beginneth to slack for you have no joy to be in my presence. But ever you are out of this court and quarrels and matters ye have nowadays for ladies, maidens and gentlewomen more than ever you were wont to have beforehand. So she says, I feel like you don't love me anymore and that you're paying more attention to the other ladies. And Lancelot responds, in this you must hold me excused for diverse causes. One is I was recently in the quest for Holy Grail and if I hadn't been in love with you, then I would have achieved the Grail. And second, I was but late in that quest and wit you well, madame, it may not be lightly forgotten the high service to whom I did my diligent labor. Third, Wit you well that there be many men speaketh of our love in this court, and have you and me greatly in a wait. So people are talking about us and lying in wait for us. And I'm worried about your honor and reputation. And fourth, if you should fall into any distress because of our um, folly, our willful folly, um, we would have to fight for you and my relatives would be pulled in and the boldness of you and me will bring us to shame and slander, and that were me loath to see you dishonored. So basically he tells her, these are the reasons, this is the logic, your feelings are illogical and you are the reason I failed in the grail quest, your folly is the reason that we all might get in trouble and we might be fighting and so on. And you're the reason that all of these um, rumors are going around at court. And Mallory says that the queen stood still and let Sir Lancelot say what he would all this time. And when he had all said, she bursts into tears. She sobbed and wept a great while. She says that I, you know, understand your falsehood. You're cheating on me. You're a common lecher. You're a coward. And get out of my sight. Get out of my court. And Lancelot, it says he departed with great heaviness. He doesn't, you know, he's blindsided here by her emotional response because he doesn't pick up on any of her emotional requests. She says, I'm jealous. I'm worried you're loving other people more than I am. And he responds, well, it's illogical for you to feel that way. And so, of course, she bursts into tears. And I had an aunt and uncle like that, right? That she would come with feelings and he would explain to her why those feelings were wrong. And so this is, I think, a really realistic portrayal of love um, rather than that kind of codified finamore. I see. But is the love between Lancelot and Guinevere, is it? similar to the love between other characters? Is it as something, uh, uh, is this couple different from other couples in, in Mallory? Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't thought of that. Um, I think it's, I think this is the most developed couple. You see them most together. You see them fighting. You see them, um, their love changing over time. Um, Tristram and Isolde have the same kind of, um, 
love as Lancelot and Guinevere, the same kind of love triangle with Tristan and Isolde and King Mark as Lancelot and Guinevere and King Arthur. And Isolde and, and Guinevere and Tristan and Lancelot actually write each other letters and complain about their lovers and so on. But I think your question makes me think that Lancelot and Guinevere, we really see the inner workings of their relationship. And you don't really see that for any of the other couples in Le Mort d'Arthur. That's really interesting. You were talking about the, the quest for the Holy Grail. I have a question about that because a large section of the of uh, Le, uh, La Mort d'Arthur is a, a huge part. A large section is about the uh, noble tale of the Sand Grail or the uh, Holy Grail. Yeah. And uh, Lancelot's usual skills suddenly are a lot less useful for that part. At some point, there's a, a woman recluse that uh, tells him, quote, as long as he were knights of earthly knighthood, you were the most marvelous men of the world and most adventurous. Now, sitting you be set among the knights of heavenly adventures. If adventure falls contrary, have ye no marvel. Knights of earthly knighthood and uh, knights of heavenly adventure, uh, a nice opposition. And then she also uh, talks about uh, knights that, uh, quote, had chosen chastity. Yeah. So in the face of chastity, love is not a superpower like we talked last time, but it is a it's a handicap. It's a sin. And at some point, Lancelot uh, admits his sin to uh, to uh, some hermit. He says, uh, quote, and then he told there the good man of his life and how he had loved the queen immeasurably and out of measure long and quote from uh, Lancelot himself, and all my great deeds of arms that I have done, for the most part was for the queen's sake, and for her sake would I do battle where it's right or wrong, and never did I battle all only for God's sake, but to win worship and to cause me the better to be beloved, end quote. Yeah. But then, as, as you pointed out, uh, the quest ends, and then it starts again, the, uh, the Lancelot uh, adventure, and his uh, love for the queen continues. So uh, would it be fair to say that Mallory's take on this supposition is actually ambivalent? Oh, yeah. I mean, Mallory is dealing with his those stories that he's received. He's also dealing with, um, you know, the rules of medieval Christianity, Um and yet he really, really wants, he really likes Lancelot. And so in some ways he's writing Lancelot fan fiction. Um, and so a lot of the Mort d'Arthur is negotiating that. And so, yeah, in the quest for the Holy Grail, it's not, actually, it's not really the adultery that's so much the problem, although that's the problem that people have had ever since with, with Lancelot and Guinevere. It's not the fact that Lancelot betrays Arthur somehow. It's the fact that that quote about immeasurable love, that Lancelot puts Queen Guinevere above God. It's fine to love on this earth, but you need to put your utmost devotion to God and God needs to be more important than all living things. That's why love is a problem. Um, and human sexual love is a problem because it, it risks trumping your love for God. And so Lancelot during the quest for the Holy Grail always falls a little short. So he's the best knight, the best earthly knight, but he's not the most spiritual. And the more boring knights like Galahad, they don't do anything wrong. And so they win the quest for the Holy Grail. But you get the sense that Mallory, I mean, he, he, 
really likes the Holy Grail and he, he writes at length about it. But then he goes back to this more temporal, earthly love or and and dynamic. And he turns again to this, this relationship, this problematic relationship that's at the heart of Camelot and the story of Camelot. Um, and so he's torn because he's received this story of the Holy Grail. He's received this story of, of Lancelot and Guinevere, and he's trying to reconcile the two. And so there's, there's when Lancelot dies at the very end, Sir Ector gives a eulogy. Ah, Lancelot, he said, thou were head of all Christian knights. And now I dare say thou, Sir Lancelot, there thou liest, that thou were never matched of earthly knight's hand. And thou were the courteous knight that ever bare shield. And thou were the truest friend to thy lover that ever bestrayed horse. And thou were the truest lover of a sinful man that ever loved women. And thou were the kindest knight that ever stroked with sword. So kind here means like natural. Um, and thou were the goodliest person that ever came among press of knights. And thou was the meekest man and the gentlest that ever eat in hall among ladies. And thou were the sternest knight to thy mortal foe, foe that ever put spear in the rest. So there are three categories of knighthood. You were a good fighter. You were an excellent courteous knight, a good lover. And you were a spiritual knight. You were a good, you were head of all Christian knights. And the problem is that those three categories, even though Lancelot kind of epitomizes them all in this eulogy at the end, those three categories come into conflict with each other. And so a lot of the last two books are exploring what happens now when all of these quests have been that like when you finished the ultimate quest that all of these quests have been leading up to when you found the grail and then what what happens here on earth and so the last two books i think are the most interesting for uh, in the mort d'arthur because they come back down to earth and deal with that i was uh, surprised by uh, uh the scene at the end of the the section right after the uh, the quest for the grail uh, where uh, seer hurry uh, has a some sort of enchanted wound that uh, that can only be cured uh, until the the wound is searched by the best knight of the world and then he a, a lot of knights try and they all uh, fail and uh, lancelot succeeds but what's surprising is that like the previous didn't the previous book just uh, wasn't the the moral of the previous book that uh, Lancelot was not the best knight in the world? At least not for those kind of thing, because uh, healing is is kind of a one of the uh, it's the main uh, magical ability of the Grail. So uh, the ability to to cure. Uh, I, I, I was surprised to see that uh, Lancelot has that ability. Yeah. And, and that is a, a real critical crux of the Mort d'Arthur. Um, I mean, an easy explanation is that the best knights have already gone off to heaven after the grail. So Lancelot is the best one on earth still left. But I think it's more complex than that. This story, we don't have a source for. The healing of Sir Uri, apparently, as far as we know, Mallory made it up. Even though he says, I found it in the French book, that's a pretty good guide for when Mallory is making stuff up. Um, and so 
The second thing is this story comes right after the only time that Mallory ever says explicitly that Lancelot and Guinevere had sex, that they slept together. So this comes right after the story of the Knight of the Card um, that Lancelot took, or that Mallory took from the Chrétien de Troyes, Lancelot. Um, and it comes, and in that story, Mallory says, because they have to explain the blood on the sheets and so on, explicitly that Lancelot and Guinevere were in bed together and took their plaisance all night, I think. And even later, when, when Agravain and Mordred are watching the king or watching Lancelot and Guinevere to run to tell the king, um, Mallory says explicitly, and whether they were to be a bed together or not, I don't know for the my source doesn't tell me. That's not a lie. His source actually says Lancelot and Guinevere were in bed together, but he omits that. The only time he says they were into bed together is the night of the cart, which comes before this miracle that Lancelot does, which reaffirms his status as the best all around knight. So not just the best fighter or the best lover, but the best spiritual knight as well, the best Christian knight. And so all of these people who want to blame Lancelot or Lancelot and Guinevere's love for the fall of the round table have to deal with this fact that after the only time Mallory says that they slept together, Lancelot then goes and does this miracle that no other knights can do. And that's weird, right? And it interestingly, it says after that, Lancelot wept as though he were a child that has been beaten. And you can find more explanations for that line <laughs> of why Lancelot is crying than any other line in Mallory, I think. Um, and critics make up all sorts of explanations. Lancelot's weeping out of remorse. He's weeping out of gratitude. He's weeping... Uh, you know, because he knows he's not really the best knight of the world and he somehow got away with this miraculous cure. All of, he's weeping out of shame. Um, all of these explanations, but Mallory doesn't tell us. He just said, Lancelot wept as though he were a child that had been beaten. That's interesting. It is. I I, I meant to ask you about the uh, uh, Mallory's take on uh, Chrétien Troyes. uh episode of the uh, uh, Chevalier de la Charrette. So, uh, and my students would have read that, the uh, similar uh, element of the tale, the jumping on the card, the night that you just discovered, uh, described mm -hmm. that Lancelot and, and Guinevere spends together, the blood on the bed, the accusation, the death of uh, Sil Sir Meliagant. So uh, do you have a few comments on how, about the modification that Mallory uh, does to that material and what he, he does with it? Yeah, I mean, I think that I said the other day that that he makes it much more practical. And I was rereading it again today. And um, he, yeah, he cuts out all of the kind of elaborate, codified courtly love stuff. And so Lancelot gets in the cart, not because of um, any, you know, overwhelming desire or for to, you know, and, and he hesitates, he doesn't even hesitate um, before getting into the cart. It's just his horse has been shot. He, his feet are sore. He needs a, a way to get to Guinevere. And Guinevere um, also, she 
pretends not to uh, react. So, so Lancelot comes up and says, so she doesn't care about him riding in the cart. She says, oh, you must have been Harvestad. And that's why. Um, and she rebukes one of her ladies who says that this is a shameful thing to do. And she says, no, that's not worthy of you or of Lancelot. She then also, um, the silence, Mallory kept that, but changed the motivation. So in, when in Chrétien, she's, or at least she pretends to be, um, upset for Lancelot's um, hesitation of two steps before getting in the in the cart. Mallory seems to think that's quite ridiculous. And so he changes that silence. And he has Queen Guinevere stay silent and not welcome Lancelot with open arms because she's worried about the rumors that are going around about them. And Lancelot gets quite annoyed with her because he's ready to fight Meliagant right away. And she says, no, let's be accorded with him. So let's make peace with him because of that need to quell the rumors. And so uh, instead they agree, like in, in Chrétien, to um, fight at King Arthur's court and Lancelot Meligant treacherously throws Lancelot into prison and, and you have that whole dynamic there and the whole plot. But the reason for the plot is different. Um, and Guinevere is worried about the rumors. Rumors are a really big thing in Mallory. The whole um, round table and follow Camelot uh, is based on these rumors that everybody is talking about Lancelot and Guinevere and nobody's saying things uh, openly or whatever. You get the sense that their love would be okay as long as nobody would talk about it. And and that's what you get in the ending because uh, I want to talk a bit about the ending. The uh, uh, Mort Darcher and with with Arthur's dead, as anyone who has read the full title knows. <laughs> yeah, he kind of uh, gives it away. Spoiler alert. <laughs> yes. But the, uh, so the last part of the story starts with the adulterous love between the queen and Lancelot finally being outed. And uh, so it seemed that the problem was not that it was happening, but that, uh, I mean, there was not a problem as long as no one was talking about it. But should we understand that final chain of, of events as an indictment of adulterous love? Well, a lot of critics have done so, and, and I suspect that I'm actually in the minority of critics who um, doesn't blame Lancelot and Guinevere, or at least thinks their, their love is only a part of the, um, to blame for the fall of the round table. Um, most, especially most Victorians, you know, this is an adulterous love, it's automatically bad, this is a Christian society, therefore they cause the fall of the round table. But if you actually read Mallory, there's surprisingly little blame put on Lancelot and Guinevere. So Merlin, way back in book one, warns Arthur about Lancelot and Guinevere. So he says, don't marry Guinevere because she's going to fall in love with Lancelot. And Arthur ignores him. Um, but he doesn't blame the fall of, the, of Camelot on them. He blames Mordred. Arthur um, is upset about the deaths of the knights Lancelot kills. So when um, Mordred and Agravain set up this trap for Lancelot and Guinevere, um, 
it's um, they burst into the the bedchamber, or I think Lancelot locks the bedchamber against them, and then I think he wraps a. Uh, I think one of Guinevere's robes or something around his arm for a shield and then pulls in one knight, clocks him on the head and then takes his armor and then kills all of the, um, I think there's 14 knights that are ambushing him. And I think, I think Mordred and Agravain get away, but all of the rest of the knights he's, he kills. And Arthur's upset about the deaths of those knights, understandably, because these guys are supposed to be on the same side. But he doesn't seem to mind the adultery. So he says, this is a direct quote, much more am I sorrier for my good knight's loss than for the loss of my fair queen. For queens, I might have enough. <laughs> That's a pretty surprising statement from a man who's just been cheated on, right? Queens, I might have enough. But Lancelot killed my knights, and I'm much more upset about that. Gawain first actively dis disregards the adultery and cancels, counsels Arthur to do so. So he can clearly see that this will destroy the round table. And he only joins the fight after Lancelot accidentally kills his brothers, Gar Gareth and Gaharis. So when Lancelot's rescuing Queen uh, Guinevere from being burned, uh, Gareth and Gaharis don't wear armor um, to show their... Um, there was like their disagreement with everything that's going on and Lancelot in the, in the heat of battle kills both of them. And so that's when Gawain gets upset at Lancelot. And he also earlier blames Agravain and Mordred. And he says, now is this realm wholly destroyed and mischieved, destroyed and mischieved and the noble fellowship of the round table shall be disparbled. I love that word disparbled. Um, and so he blames Agravain and Mordred for bringing this into the open. The narrator blames Agravain and Mordred. He, he actually starts the, sec the section and all was long upon two unhappy knights, which were named Sir Agravain and Sir Mordred. That's how he introduces the whole section. And sometimes Gawain. So King Arthur would have taken his queen again and have been accorded with Sir Lancelot, but Sir Gawain would not suffer him by no manner of mean. But the narrator never blames Lancelot and Guinevere. And it, despite the fact that most critics blame them. And Mallory himself, I mean, I, I think he's probably pretty close to the narrator, but in the structure of the whole novel, or the whole book, um, Lancelot is holy enough to heal Sir Uri after the text explicitly says he has slept with Guinevere. And both Lancelot and Guinevere die good deaths. Guinevere in a convent and Lancelot dies the death of a saint. So, so not only does he die and there's this wonderful eulogy, but his, um, he's taken straight up to heaven uh, with a sweet smell, which is the death, death of a saint. So in the story, Lancelot and Guinevere are the only ones who actually blame themselves. They say, yes, it was our fault, but nobody else blames them. And so Mallory doesn't seem to feel the need to resolve this contradiction um, inherent in Lancelot and Guinevere's adulterous and noble love. Like this love is both adulterous and noble, and that doesn't seem to be a problem. And instead, the fall of the round table is much more complex than just because of Lancelot and Guinevere. Interesting. 
But uh, enough, uh, enough with love. My my last question is about uh, death. Because <laughs> okay. The the course is about love and death, and it would be uh, a shame to interview a specialist on Arthur about uh, Le Mort d'Arthur uh, without asking a question about the death of Arthur. Well, and yeah, the Mort part of the Mort d'Arthur. Yes. So uh, when we talked about Chrétien III uh, last week, I, I presented this take on Arthurian romance as somehow frozen in time. So stories start with Archer already king and they end with Archer still king and still alive. Yeah. It's obviously not the case with Mallory. So can you tell us a bit about the uh, the importance of the ending in uh, Le Morse d'Archer or the ending or the death of or the non-death of Archer in general? <laughs> Yeah, of course. Um, so yeah, I think I was thinking about that idea of kind of history versus episodes, the timelessness. And you do get a sense of that timelessness in the middle stories. So the tale of Sir Lancelot, definitely the tale of Sir Tristram. It's all of these, oh, maybe Gareth, they're kind of in that timeless moment of people, individual knights having adventures, right? it goes on and on and on and on actually about their adventures and doesn't seem to relate to the overall history. But then you, at the beginning and in the end, of course, you have the, the foundation, you have Arthur's conception and the foundation of the round table. And then at the end, you do have this, this dissolution of this whole great thing that Arthur and his knights have built. And so He's very interested as well in that history and the historical part. And the whole book is pointing towards the ending, right? You get the title, Mort d'Arthur, you get all of these, especially in the first book, you get all of these prophecies about the quest for the Holy Grail, but then also about the fall of the round table and the, and the, the fact that it can't last. And so when you get to the ending, it's not really a surprise and um so the interest is more in how does this come about and how is this kind of inevitable and how do all of these specific individual personal conflicts and loyalties all of which are worthy in themselves i mean even agravain and mordred are kind of acting out of um spite you and and jealousy of, of Lancelot but they're still doing what you know is supposed to be right and Lancelot and Guinevere are being noble and Arthur is being noble and Gawain is being noble the problem is that all of these values come into conflict with each other and Gawain needs to take revenge for his brothers and needs to stop Arthur from making peace with Lancelot and so all of those things make the ending seem inevitable. But at every point along the way, individuals could have chosen to act a different way. The problem is that they couldn't have chosen to act that different way and stayed true to themselves. And I think Mallory is really interested in that problem, that Lancelot's self-definition is, like part of his self-definition is his love for Guinevere and how that makes him a better knight. And so part of that self-definition, he can't stop loving Guinevere and still be Lancelot. And it's the same with all of the other characters. And so that inevitably causes the death of Arthur. The actual death, this whole book has been pointing towards the death of Arthur. 
even in the title. And the title of the last section is called The Death of Arthur as well, if in case we miss the point of the title of the whole book. Um, and when it actually comes, uh, there's this great battle with Mordred and Arthur kills uh, Mordred and then he's mortally wounded himself and Bedivere takes him to the uh, side of the lake. And, and so everything seems inevitable that Arthur is going to die. But then Mallory stops short of that conclusion and the actual death happens off stage. Arthur says to Bedivere, comfort yourself and do as well as thou must for in me is no trust for to trust in. For I will go into the Vale of Avalon to heal me of my grievous wound. And if thou hear never more of me, pray for my soul. And so he's taken away to Avalon to be healed ostensibly. And then Bedivere finds a body and he, is, he assumes um, it will be that it's Arthur. But there's no confirmation of that. And then Mallory says... Thus of Arthur I find no more written in books that are authorized, that are authorized, neither more of the very certainty of his death heard I never read, but thus he was led away in a ship where, wherein were three queens. And now no more of the death of King Arthur could I never find, but that these ladies brought him to his grave, and such a one was in, interred there, by which the hermit bear witness. And... So then he even more <laughs> obscurely says, um, yet some men say in many parts of England that King Arthur is not dead, but had by the will of our Lord Jesus into another place. And some men say that he shall come again and he shall win the Holy Cross. Yet I will not say that it shall be so, but rather I would say here in this world, he changed his life. And many men say that there is written upon this tomb, this verse, so here lies Arthur, once and future king. And so Mallory keeps suggesting that he's going to clear things up. I'm not going to say that he's, you know, not dead. I'm going to say that he changed his life. And I mean, is that a euphemism for death? There's been some evidence that that, that is like, you know, the way we say passed on in Middle English. But why doesn't he just say he died? And so this ambiguity and this openness about Arthur's death is really interesting and also has spawned, I mean, this is the reason that Mallory is the source for all this modern fantasy. You get T.H. White's Once and Future King, you get Guy Gabriel Kay's uh, return of, you know, this Arthur who comes back every time there's a, a major problem. And so there's, there's this whole future time travel um, that has spawned lots of modern fantasy. But Mallory himself doesn't actually say Arthur died. He says Lancelot and Guinevere both die and they both die holy deaths. But he is weirdly cagey about the death of King Arthur. So what's your personal take on that? When do you... <laughs> When do you think that Archer is coming back? Oh, when do I? <laughs> well, interestingly, I mean, he's been, his return has been used for political reasons, right? Any side that wants to adopt him for a personal reason will revive these myths for national and, and um, so on, this myth. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, but it's, it's 
weirdly compelling, right? If you if you want to do a Freudian reading, this moment of death that we're all heading towards is then oddly deferred and put off stage. And so it's it's inevitable, but we don't want to think about it, right? And we don't want to admit that it's actually happened. There's still a potential for a, it not to have happened. Well, well, it's been a, a great pleasure interviewing you uh, about all of this. I'm sure my uh, student will really appreciate your uh, your uh, your input on uh, love and death. Well, thank you very much, and it was a pleasure rambling on about my, one of my favorite books in the world. You've been listening to Eavesdropping on Arthurians with Kathy Causey. Join me next time to eavesdrop on another chat about a different but equally fascinating story about Arthur. Our music is Mordred's Lullaby by Heather Dale. You can download it for free from heatherdale.com.